Having a child, you learn some things, not because you're intelligent, uh, but just because you get to see a little human begin to kind of make their way in this world. You want to teach them uh, in such a way that they will become full, mature, whole adults one day, eventually. Uh, and then there are things that you really kind of don't have to teach. There are a lot of things you do have to teach, but there's some things that you don't have to teach, like how to be hungry. Babies get that. How to sleep. Babies get that too, though maybe not as often or as easily as we'd like. Uh, one other thing that comes in earlier that you might expect is how to manipulate. How to manipulate. If I cry, if I'm a baby, and I get this thing, I mean, crying can, at some point stops being just merely a physical response to hunger and ends up being wanting food, which is very different, the need versus the want. Like, or if I throw a tantrum, I'll get what I want, is a lot of kind of what goes behind behind um, in, in our thoughts. Now, manipulation is our attempt to craft the world in such a way where we get the most benefit. That's what manipulation is all about. We believe that if we have to do something, we have to contort something in a way that ought not to be in order for us to get the thing that we feel like either we want or we deserve or whatever. And we don't have to be taught how to do that. Like We learn it ourselves. We see it at work as well in the world. Now, if I say this in this way, or if I do this for this person in this way, I'll get what I want. And that's a lot different than doing something nice for someone and not expecting anything in return. In fact, when someone does that for us, oftentimes because we're so used to manipulation, it kind of catches us off guard. Like, well, what do you really want? Like, what's the deal? What's like, you know, what's the fine print? We get suspicious of, of actual kind acts. Now, we would be fools to think that our propensity for manipulation doesn't get involved with our spiritual lives. Of course it gets involved in our spiritual lives. Of course it does. And ironically, manipulating the world doesn't really get us what we need. We manipulate to get what we, what we think we need, but we really never get that thing. And so we end up frustrated and think the answer is just to manipulate more. And we end up in this kind of negative loop. In fact, we might get what we want, maybe, if we manipulate and if we're good at it, if we're cunning in that way. But what we want sometimes is at the expense of what we truly need. Now, manipulation sees the world as something for me first. That's what the world is about. Something for me first. It's consumerism writ large. If I'll do this, but only if I get something out of it. And this half-hearted way of living prevents us from being whole. Now, Jesus saves us from our manipulative hearts and gives us a bigger vision for life one that can serve God and seek him with a whole heart. This is the best thing for us, and this is why we're going to focus on manipulation today. Now, in this story that we have today, think of it like an old-school Western film, okay? It's just asking for like a Coen Brothers kind of treatment to it. It's like the remake of True Grit, or the original True Grit, if you've seen that. You have Micah. Yeah, there's a guy who has some cash. You have this Levite drifter character, and they're both kind of raw individualists out for themselves, and then you have this gang of outlaws. It's got everything, doesn't it? You have this gang of outlaws, and they recognize this Levite drifter. Uh, they case the joint, then come along back later, and they steal everything. And the drifter just kind of goes along with them and does what he does. On their way out, with all of Micah's stuff and with Micah's priest, Micah tries to catch them up. He gets on a fast horse and he catches them up. And the gang goes like, what's the matter with you? And Micah's response, I love it, in the, in the NIV, it's like, well, what's the matter with you? Like, you're the kind of the one who stole all my stuff and my priest. Like, what's the deal? And then the gang threatened Micah. If you don't turn back now, we're going to kill you and your whole family. 
And this isn't just a gang. Like, there's an army along with that gang. And so Micah has no choice but to return back with nothing. So the Dan gang, the gang from Dan with the Drifter, and now with an army that continue to the North Country, they kill the people there. They burn down their city. They steal the land and rebuild it and rename it for themselves. Part of the rebuilding process meant setting up this Drifter, this Levite Drifter, as their high priest. And he leads them in worshiping an idol. Nobody is on any side except for their own. Everyone's on their own side. They're all up for themselves. And as the narrator tells us, everyone did as they saw fit. That's what happens. Left to our own devices, doing what we see fit. Oftentimes with good intentions, inevitably leads to chaos. So let's, let's take a look at the three main characters again here. So we have Micah, who stole from his mom, uh, gave it back to her. And she was so impressed with that, the fact that he stole and gave it back to her, that um, she gave it to him. She said that she was going to give it to God, but she really didn't. Now, now they were sort of religious, and they used like a portion of that to make an idol. Of course, it wasn't just for Yahweh either. It was idols of other gods as well. And Micah, what he does is he makes a center of worship for himself. Okay, there's Micah. And now you have this Levite drifter, who we learn later, at the very end of the story, is named Jonathan. And the horror of horrors to the readers who, after hearing this horrible story and then finding out this Levi Drifter is Jonathan, he's a descendant of Moses. How in the world could that have happened? Moses is, is like, in, especially at this time that it was written, like the best leader Israel has ever had. And then his direct descendant is leading people off the, tra off the path of Yahweh. Now, a Levite was a was part of a tribe called the Levites. They were a tribe that were supposed to lead the other 11, other 11 tribes in Israel in how to worship God. And God set out very clear terms. This is how I want you to worship me. There was kind of nothing left up to like a question, like this is how and where I want you to worship me. But this drifter doesn't really care about worshiping God. He's just out for himself. He comes across a shrine, becomes a holy man for hire, and works for whoever pays the bills, worshiping whatever gods work for him. He's very pragmatic in that way. Now, lastly, so we have Micah, we have the Drifter, Jonathan, and now we have the gang from Dan, the Dan gang. These are five guys sent out from a tribe called Dan, a different tribe in Israel, sent to spy out more land for Dan to conquer. And they heard there was this kind of open country in the north. On their way there, these spies, they, they come across this shrine, and they recognize the Drifter by his voice. They recognize it. I can, I can imagine the Clint Eastwood kind of uh, gravelly, scratchy voice, and they come across him. Uh, notice the very last sentence in Judges 18.31. says, All the time the house of God was in Shiloh. Now, the house of God is a symbol for God's presence. This is where God wanted his center of worship to be. This is how God intended it to be. The city of Dan is in the extreme north of this area. Shiloh it is in the south, about 100 miles away. If you see on this map, right or on this side, right over here, Dan is in the north. Shiloh is in the south. If you follow kind of the, those red lines are, are ancient highways. If you follow those ancient highways, that's a 100-mile journey, which is a big deal back then. God's presence in this story. Where is it? It's not with where the people are going. There's lots of religious talk. There's a lot of worship ish stuff going on. There's a priest even from, from the tribe of Levi. People are serving God. People are seeking God, or are they really? Now, these people are far from God's presence. 
not just physically, but even more true spiritually, doing what they think is right, and they can't help but manipulate the world for their own good. So we seek and serve God to manipulate him. That's what we learn in this story. We seek and we serve God to manipulate him. It's a mirror for our, who we are as humans, a mirror of humanity here. So we're going to look at what it means to, to serve God to manipulate him, to seek him to manipulate him, and then we'll look at how Jesus calls us to something more. Uh, but let's look at how we serve God to manipulate him. Now, serving and worshiping, these words are, are synonymous, basically. We wrong, I think sometimes we wrongly think they're two different things. Like if we serve God as doing something and worshiping God is like, um, like singing by ourselves or something or praying by ourselves. Praying and singing and doing things for God, all that is worship, all that is serving. Uh, I serve God here, I worship him there. That's not really how the Bible talks about it. Doing things for God is worship. Just as much as singing to him, just as much as hearing the word preach, what we're doing now is we're serving him and worshiping him. It's all kind of combined. Now, sometimes it does feel, though, like giving and receiving. Sometimes it feels like I'm giving more of myself out or receiving more of myself in. I mean, that, that feels kind of true, and I think that's true in how we see in Scripture. But either way, when we serve God, when we worship him, either whether we are receiving or giving, we do all of that to manipulate him. There's that reality, that, that thread of reality, that kind of dark reality within all of us. And here's where this story of Judges teaches us this. Let's, let's look at Micah first. Um, Micah, serving God, is he? Well, he, he makes an idol. By the way, just making an idol, even if he was to make an idol of Yahweh, of God, would be completely against the rules that God has said about himself. That's in the Ten Commandments. It's very clear. It's not like Micah's not following some kind of small little fine print of the law. This is like very obvious. Micah isn't really following Yahweh. He's basically following how the other countries and other peoples around him are living. But never mind, Micah's going to serve God in the way that Micah thinks is right, regardless of what God might say. Now, why is he doing this? Why is he doing this? Now, I think it all comes back to the curse that he heard his mother say. So in the very beginning of the story, uh, this, his mom, who um, uh, was offered, uttered a curse against someone who stole her stuff, not knowing that it was Micah at the time, and he heard that, and then he gave the stuff back. And then what he do with that money? Well, he set up a shrine, and, he, and then he got himself a priest. In Judges 17.13, this is where I think it really becomes clear. After he does all this, Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me. Because he didn't know before, he was uncertain. How was Micah getting this certainty of the Lord's love for him? Now I know the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. So now that Micah has done all this stuff, now he's going to be certain and rest in that manipulation of God to be good to him. Micah does what he thinks is a good thing for the Lord in order for the Lord to do good to him. This is what religion is, this is empty religion. It's a simple game of manipulation. And it basically says, I do good in order to get good. I do the things you want, God. Tick box, tick box, tick box. Now you do the things I want. It's very transactional. It's no kind of loving relationship. There's no kind of care about a presence of God in our lives. What it does is, for Micah, for him, even though it's completely false, it gives him a clear conscience, even though it's not really real. It gives him a feeling of rightness as well. Now I know that I've done good. The Lord's going to do good to me. Now let's look at Jonathan, the Levite, who seems to have a bit of a different motivation here. So the Levite, 
does know better. Um, Levites generally were instructed from an early age how to worship God in the way that God has told him to. The Levite would have known the Ten Commandments at the very least, let alone the rest of the Torah, the rest of the teaching. Uh, the Levite should have said to Micah, what are you doing? You can't set up a place of worship wherever you want. You can't have these idols. You can't make an image of, of God. Like, what do you, you can't worship God in the way that you think is best. You have to worship God in the way that he has told us to. That's like giving a bad gift to your partner. You know, you ask them what they want for their birthday and they tell you, but you don't really listen. You get them something that they think they want. And they really don't like it in the end. That's a horrible way to give a gift. I've never done that as a husband. Never. But the Levite doesn't say any of that stuff. He doesn't say, this is a horrible way to give a gift to the Lord that you supposedly want to serve. Micah says, you'll be my priest and I'll give you money. And the priest is like, cool, sounds good. And then when a better deal comes along, after the gang of Dan comes along, um, they say, hey, we'll give you more money and we'll actually, we'll make you like a high priest. And he's like, yep, that's cool. Sounds good. In fact, when he's asked um, to the question from the gang, it says, well, why be you know, a priest for, for one man in his household when you can be a priest for a whole tribe. And what does it say in Judges 18.20? The judges accepted this offer, the, the priest accepted this offer, and it said that he was very pleased. The priest was very pleased. What pleases the priest? Getting honor, getting recognition, getting money, getting stuff. A Levite says he's serving God, but clearly he's not. He's not concerned about God's glory. There's no concern for God's glory in the story at all. He's manipulating his service, his worship to God for his own glory, and he's in it to climb that ladder of success. And that is true for all of us. In your career, why are you there? To climb that ladder of success for you? Or is there a way to actually serve God in, in, in the, what he's gifted you to do? Same thing, it's no different in the pastoral church world. I know plenty of people from seminary that were all about climbing that ladder of success. And it was, why are you going to this denomination instead of this denomination? And some of it was because retirement benefits and all sorts of things like that. He's in it to climb the ladder of success and getting a job title, that doesn't, help, that doesn't hurt either. So, the priest describes himself as someone who's been hired. This is how he describes himself. Uh, in 18 uh, verses 3 and 4, the answer to the gang of Dan who asks some questions like, who are you, what are you doing here? The priest's answer is... Micah has hired me, and I'm his priest. Micah is a hired man. He's a bought man. He's willing to serve whoever it is, as long as they have the right price. Jonathan, that, that priest, just a hired gun to do a job. He's not God's priest. He's Micah's priest. He's not a servant of God. In fact, being a servant of God would have cost Jonathan his job. It would have, but he's not really concerned about that. It doesn't cost him anything. In fact, more than that, he's profiting from it. So Micah's manipulation is I do good in order to get good. Jonathan's manipulation is I do good in order to get stuff. Both of them are concerned about using religion in order for them to get some kind of benefit out of it. I'll do this good thing if I get this good thing. And both would say they serve God. In fact, they, they kind of do in the story. Both would say they worship God. They would say, oh, I love Yahweh. Maybe they would even know the right words, the right rituals they kind of do. But it's always on their own terms and how they see fit. This is not how God wants to be worshipped. Whenever we do things in the way that we see fit, we always drift to really just doing what we want to do in the way that's most convenient for us. Notice, whenever we try and work things out in our own way, it's never really for someone else's benefit. It's all We always end up benefiting more out of it. 
And this is not limited to just like church life or Christianity. This is true for everybody, regardless of where you are with Jesus. I do good for this God or gods or this cause or whatever in order to get good or in order to get stuff. Now, these manipulative hearts in these stories, in this story, should (laughs) hit close to home in all of us. I mean, raise your hand if you've ever served God to manipulate him. All of our hands should be up in the air. Have you ever worshipped him in order to get something from him? Have you ever acted more like a hired gun than a servant of God, even if you never actually got paid like actual money? If you cared more about yourself and how you see fit over what God has clearly told us and how he's told us to live, when you serve and don't get that recognition, how do you feel? Is it about you? We talk about how we're a gospel-formed family. When there is conflict, are we actually... do? Do we really lean into the family thing, or do we try and get what we want to get out of it? Now, we're all there, right? Like, let's get a little bit more specific. Those questions that the Dan, the Dan gang, I can't even say it, even though I really wanted to say it a lot, the Dan gang, those questions that the Dan gang have for Jonathan are the same for us, and the same for us. Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? Why are you here? What penetrating questions maybe even unintentionally uttered by this kind of outlaws gang of spies. Who brought, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? Why are you here? Those are great questions to ask yourself. Especially when you kind of get worked up with something. To stop and even ask those three questions of yourself. Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? Why are you here? Really, why are you doing this? Why do you serve? I mean, do you think you can, by doing your bit, you can have a better life? That you can get in good with God somehow? Is the church an opportunity for you to get honor or recognition? This is especially true for us in a small church. People have come in and wanted to, kind of, they have their idea of something that they want to get done, and if it doesn't tick their boxes, then they've left. Or they just kind of get angry with me, which is okay. The question isn't if we are manipulating for all of us, it's how we are manipulating. Are we like conversant with that within ourselves? Because we all are. So let's be honest with that. Know that we don't have it all together and bring that before God. We so we tell God the way to bring it to, before God is we say, God, I'm sorry, I recognize this in myself. Please, will you help me change and grow in this way? Ask him to change us. The, if we don't, then we will stay the same. We will stay the same. So why do we serve the parts of you that think that by being good, you'll get good. Confess that to God. It doesn't have to be some kind of massive thing. That could be something you might have to pray every day if, you're, if, you, if that's a part of you. The parts of you that really do like honor or recognition, confess that. The parts of you that want to be seen as doing something good or want to be seen as doing being involved in the church or something like that, that that's a, a way to relish in self-righteousness because of the good that you think you do. Confess that to God. That is all springing from manipulative religion, and it springs from our needs, but really only delivers emptiness, because it's not the way to get what we need. Now, on the other hand, why don't you serve or get more involved in the way that God has has told us, the way that God has clearly told us in Scripture? Maybe you're holding back from committing to our church, 
in membership. You're not really maybe all in with a missional community in the way that a family should be. Like you go there when it's convenient and when it's not, like you just peace out. Or maybe even watching online and you haven't really made it to um, any other stronger connection, whether that's replying to like email or just wanting to, to read the Bible with somebody or something like that. Now, I know all these things can take time and we're all in kind of different paces with where we are with God and it's fine to, to be on God's timeline. But are we on God's timeline or are we kind of like not really giving all of ourselves to God in the way that he's told us to be? If in our hearts, if given the opportunity, we will most often take the easiest road. And we do that in all ways, but especially in the local church. We get just enough for us and then that's it. We commit, but kind of like as least as possible. We don't want to overcommit, right? I don't want to overextend myself. It's like any other kind of product that we buy. And we treat the church like that. Now, the way to test this for yourself is how you respond in difficulty. How do you view serving and worshiping God when it's difficult? We're going to be in this pandemic era for a bit, right? That makes things, that's like a multiplier effect on difficulty, especially when it comes to relationships. It's not easy. I mean, Sundays and missional communities, it will be more difficult for quite some time going forward. And more than just kind of meeting times, but being a family of people who are committed to each other. Unlike in this story, there's no family at all. People are just out for themselves. And if they don't get it, then they kill people and rebuild a town for their own good. Why? Here's a question of, of any kind of ministry. Why are we doing it? Or why are we not doing it? The question here, why are you here? What's going on? Now also, let's just not limit the story to, to Redeemer. Notice, Micah wasn't just serving one god. He was serving many gods. It's capital G, God, and lowercase g, gods. This applies to work. This applies to your relationships. All of life is worship. For 1 Corinthians says even eating and drinking is an aspect of worship. If eating and drinking, the most basic physical acts, are part of worship, then surely our relationships and our work and, all, and our hobbies and all sorts of other things are. All of life is worship. So are you using your job first for yourself to get ahead, to get the stuff you want or to get security or whatever, or as a way to serve God. Now, of course, you're going to work for a paycheck. I'm not saying like work for free. But in getting a, getting a paycheck shouldn't diminish the, your ability to be able to worship God through your job. What about when you give a partner a compliment? Is it so that you can kind of do what you want later and kind of get away with something? Or are you just kind of trying to make up for something that you really shouldn't have done? Instead of giving a compliment, you should just say, I'm sorry and apologize. Or how about this? Do you think that being good being religious, serving God in any way, or just being a good person in any way, do you think that because you're like that, you're entitled to a life free of suffering? That because of like that, because you're like that, um, you will never experience conflict? I mean, that, that's what Micah thought. I'm good, and therefore God's going to be good to me. And one of the reasons I think we have such a problem with suffering is we aren't serving God. We aren't concerned with really doing good. We'll do good up to a point. We use it as a way to manipulate the world around us. And when that formula breaks down, we break down. It's the question of like, when something difficult happens, how could this happen? Like, I don't deserve it. I'm good. I've done all the right things. Believe me, I've been there. I've, I've thought all those things. Jesus never promised a life free from suffering, unfortunately. It would be amazing if we had that kind of life. We don't experience that yet, but there is a hope reserved for us. 
where there will be an existence, eternal existence, free from suffering. But while we're on this earth, Jesus is brutally honest with us. He doesn't say you're going to be free from suffering. In fact, he says, you will suffer for my sake. So being a believer means we're going to suffer more. That's kind of what it means. And suffering more than normal because we suffer for his sake. If there's any question, look to Jesus' life. He was reviled, looked down upon, tortured to death. And this is the God that we follow. That's his path. That's the path he's on, and that's what we follow. And he was much better than we are. Like, he was perfect. His perfection didn't stop him from suffering. Why would we expect any good thing from us to do anything better? But here's the thing. What Jesus has promised us is this. Regardless of whatever suffering you're going through, regardless of whatever it is, he will provide a way through it. I may not know exactly what that is. You may not know exactly what that is. But I guarantee you that is the truth because Jesus has said that. And I believe the words that Jesus says. He will always provide a way through it. You may not always understand it. You may not always like it. You may not always come out on the better side with more things and with a, with a like a out, outward, generally happy life. It might be a more difficult life for you. But he's always there. He's never leaving, never forsaking, always with you, always inviting you to the path of wholeness. That's what he does. But... We don't get that in this story at all. It's all about manipulating God, and therefore they miss him completely. And that really is the tragedy here. People talking about God, missing him completely, sabotaging their lives. So we serve God to manipulate him. The other thing the story teaches us is we seek God to manipulate him. We seek him to manipulate him. And maybe I should kind of put air quotes around like seeking God, because it's not really seeking God. It's kind of like gives at least a veneer of of seeking God. Let's look um, at the story for this in chapter 18, verse 5. The gang of Dan, I can't say the Dan, the Dan gang. I'm going to keep doing, I'm going to keep trying. Maybe by the end of the sermon I'll get it right. right? Uh, The Dan gang asks this drifter, Levite, in uh, chapter 18, verse 5. They say, please inquire of God to learn whether our journey will be successful. And seemingly immediately, the priest's like, yeah, yeah, you're good. You're good. Yep. Like, you know, do all the things that, you know, you feel like you need. But yeah, you're good. There are so many issues here. First, why is this gang asking this priest for guidance? In fact, they were already questioning, like, what's your deal? It's kind of weird you're here, Levite Drifter. He's been bought and paid for. The people asking are just as far from God as the one that they that is asked. And you can tell that by the way they ask. They ask for like a generic God approval. Uh, The word for God that they use here is more of a generic term for him, Elohim. It's not the uh, personal name for God, which is Yahweh. So the priest might know maybe a bit more theology. The priest might be able to say God's personal name in a way that they're like, ooh, well, that's interesting. That's a cool theological term, cool vocabulary. The priest might even know the right answers. But he's just as clueless, completely clueless. So what is the gang actually seeking in this by asking the priestess? What are they what are they what are they wanting to get out of it? Well, they probably see it as good luck. Getting a god on your side can't hurt, right? I mean if you're gonna kill a bunch of people or spy out some kind of potential land, can't hurt if there is a god or one god among others for him to help you out a little bit. I mean maybe kinda of how we view karma. Um, you know, we give a little bit of money to this charity and in the back of our heads we think, Oh, the world's gonna repay me for that. I really am a good person. 
Well, we do have an insight in, in verse 10. When the gang goes back to their people, part of the reasoning for taking over a town in that north country is now, it, it's, it's attributed to now it's God's design. Look at verse 10. It says, when you get there, you'll find an unsuspecting people and a spacious land. So the place is good. It's ripe for the taking. And here's the phrase. It's just, uh, it's horrible. That God has put into your hands a land that lacks nothing, whatever, whatsoever. God has placed into your hands. How can they possibly say that? Well, they got the check from the priest, this kind of rogue drifter priest. Now it's God's on our side. We can do whatever we want. The gang is seeking God, but for their own good. Only with the goal to manipulate him in order for them to get what they want. But this really is how we use the Bible, isn't it? Sometimes maybe we open it up and put our finger on a spot like, oh, maybe that's what God's telling me. And we like certain parts of scripture. We don't like other parts. Um, we like maybe half of what God has to say and the half that we don't like, we just kind of gloss over it or, you know, those aren't the ones that we memorize or, you know, embroider on pillows or whatever. We gloss over it. Well, of course, we're very polite. We don't say, oh, yeah, I, I don't like all of God's words. I love all of God's word, but, you know, not that part. Most especially this stuff. Or you know, maybe we even like kind of shout with our fingers on our ears like, as if like God can't possibly touch us if we do that. What claim does God really have over your life? That's a difficult question. Does he actually change your day-to-day -day existence? What claim does he really have over your life? How does following Jesus in a world that doesn't actually make you different? Or are you just like everybody else? If we were to truly seek God, we would have lives organized around the words that he speaks to us. After all, like that's where we get we are a gospel-formed family from. Right? There's, there's only just words and jargon. A gospel-formed family is a family formed around the gospel, the good news that God has given us in his word. Instead, though, what we're prone to is, is with our manipulative hearts is we don't forgive as Jesus called us to. We want grace for ourselves, but justice for others. We're not as generous as Jesus calls us to. We want other people to be generous to us, though. We don't give our time and attention to others as Jesus calls us to. Of course, we want that for ourselves. We see, we, we manipulate things to make us always look better. No one has ever manipulated the world to make, the, to make our situation worse. We always manipulate stuff to make us look the best. And when bad things happen, when we get angry with God, why is that? What are we trying to get out of him anyway? Do we think worshiping him means we'll never experience suffering? Our manipulation sabotages our spiritual life, most especially when it comes to how we approach the Bible. So, let's say you, we're going to go through different levels here. Let's say you read the Bible regularly, and that's great. That's a, that's a, a spiritual practice that all Christians should be a part of. Reading the Bible regularly. Um, through that, do you get some sense of superiority? Do you mine it for like the feel-good parts? Or are you reading kind of like all of Scripture? When you come across difficult passages, like places where God offends you, and if you read the Bible regularly, you will come across those parts, believe me. What do you do with that? Do you pass it over? Do you try and play it down? You move on as quickly as possible? You kind of, oh, yeah, yeah, but, but uh, I'm, I'm this or this happened here instead. When Jesus commands us to forgive each other, do we see that as a suggestion? He doesn't say forgive your friends 
or even just your family, he also talks about our enemies. That's really difficult. When Jesus makes demands on how we view our work life, on what it means to take a Sabbath day off, to not work one day, because we trust that God is at work, even while we're not, is that just kind of like a good thought? Maybe one day I'll get there, like once I retire or something? When Jesus demands us to surrender our views of sexuality and ethics to him, are we all in on that? We don't have to like it. Are we all in on that, though? Or do we just seek God when it's convenient, when we need to pick me up, basically an attempt to manipulate him? See, worship is whatever we give our attention to. It's whatever we give our attention to. And spiritually, we have an attention deficit disorder. Always jumping from this thing to that thing, a dash of this, a splash of that, just like Micah with all his little household gods. Just like the people in our story. We give attention to God, attention to our careers, attention to the middle class ideals of success, worshiping God, worshiping other gods. Seeking God, seeking other gods. Always an attempt to manipulate the world to get us what we want and always at the expense of what we really need. If we follow God only when it's convenient or suits us, we have to be honest with ourselves. We are trying to manipulate him. Now, all of this, all of it, leads us astray. This is actually a bad thing for us. It's how we can be very religious and sabotage our lives. I mean, Micah and Jonathan and the gang from Dan, they all teach us that humans are bent towards manipulating the world in our favor. It's just something that's in us and innate and something that we have to constantly be bringing up and dredging up and confessing and giving it over to God so he changes us. So if we can't help ourselves when it comes to manipulation by ourselves, whether you're religious or not, we're, we're all in this together. If we can't help ourselves, what can be done about it? And what we need is someone who isn't prone to this same kind of manipulation to change us. We don't need another human, although that can help. What we need is someone who is kind of above humanity. And thankfully, Jesus, he sees our manipulative hearts, our hearts that are in pieces, scattered about as we've given it away to all sorts of things and all sorts of people. We give some away here, some away there. And in his power and love, he puts us together how we were meant to be. Jesus creates people with whole hearts. That's the business of what Jesus is doing. And thank God for that. Jesus saves us from our manipulative hearts and gives us a bigger vision for life because manipulation always lowers us down, always gives us a small life. A, a, a heart that's free from that, a whole heart that's free from that kind of manipulation allows us to live into a bigger, much more grand story, one that can serve God and seek him with a whole heart. And this is the best for us because it gets us what we need. We may not get what we want, but we get what we need. Now in the Bible, the heart is a symbol of like our whole being, like our essence kind of boiled down, who we really are. And this story teaches us that we can obey in some ways, we can say the right words even, and still be very far from God, as far as Dan is from Shiloh. And that's a mismatch between our words, our actions, and our heart, what's really going on. Wholeheartedness is more than outward obedience. It's a life that flows from being made whole by Jesus. Let me say that again. Wholeheartedness is more than just outward obedience. It's a whole life that flows from being made whole by Jesus. It's an obedience that comes like an, an overflow of the whole self. 
being made whole by Jesus brings together what is broken so that there is no disconnect anymore between our words and our actions, between what we really think deep down and what we actually do in the real world. I mean, there's a story of, of Jesus in John, John chapter 5, where Jesus comes across a man who is described as an invalid and has been this way for 38 years. This man's physical body is not whole. It's broken. It's not as it's meant to be. It's not as it was created to be. And Jesus asks the man if he wants to be healed. John 5, 6. He's asking the man there, who, who's there kind of like these healing waters, saying, do you want to get well? I find that really interesting that he's asking the man, do you want to get well? At first glance, we probably would all be like, of course he would. Like, why would Jesus even ask? Like, he's there at the place where he is experiencing some level of healing, like these pools that they would have. Why would Jesus even ask? Because not everyone who's ill wants to get well. That's true. Not everyone who's ill wants to get well. And if we have physical problems, we might quickly go to a doctor. Like, if I break my arm, I'm not going to hang on to the arm and you know, not go to the GP. Well, most of us, anyway. Some of us kind of avoid doctor at all costs. But in our spiritual problems, not many of us want to get well. We think we can limp along with it or, or kind of get by with just that one arm because we want to stay the same. And Jesus is asking you, he's asking me, he's asking all of us as a church, do you want to get well? But do you? Jesus frees us to a bigger, better life, one that allows us to say with the psalmist in Psalm 119, says, I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. To be able to seek God with all of our heart. That's what Jesus is about. I was thinking about this, um, actually, as I was sitting in a dentist chair, getting my, my teeth cleaned a few weeks ago. Um, it's never an enjoyable experience, the dentist, right? I, I don't know anyone who looks forward to go to the dentist. I, I was born um, with kind of all these problems in my mouth because I had a cleft lip, a cleft palate, and I had to like, take cartilage from other parts of my body to fix kind of things that were going on. And I have all sorts of dental and orthodontic issues because of it. So the dentist chair, the orthodontic kind of chair, not my favorite place. Well, I went there for a cleaning, um, and it's not enjoyable, of course. Nobody's lining up for the experience of the joy of having another person, another human being, like, scrape your teeth with a scraper, and then you pay them. It just seems ridiculous, right? But I want to have healthy teeth, uh, so I go. Even though it hurts, and I don't enjoy it, and I'm anxious, and my heart rate's elevated the whole time, I want to get well with my teeth. My need of having healthy teeth is more important than my want of avoiding pain, of avoiding anxiety, of avoiding worry. Right? My need of having healthy teeth is more important than my want of avoiding pain. See, Jesus healed that man at, at, that, that was an invalid for 38 years. Whatever illness he had, it was gone. And later on, when Jesus was being asked about it, he said he healed a whole man's body. In John 7, 23, he healed a whole man's body. Jesus made that man whole. He was incomplete. Then he was made whole by Jesus. And this is what Jesus does. He makes things whole. He did then. He does now. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone, in, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. The old, incomplete, broken is gone. The new is here right now 
in, in the present moment. See, Micah needed to be a new creation. Jonathan needed to be a new creation. The gang from Dan needed to be a new creation. We are the same. A few verses previous to this, in, in uh, verse 15 of 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this, that Jesus died for all kinds of people. He says that those who live, who are alive, should no longer live for themselves, doing what's right, what we think is right, but live for him, Jesus, who died for them and was raised again. Jesus died for all kinds of people, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. See, Jesus was broken and shattered and destroyed on the cross. He took all our sin, all the times we manipulate, even the times we don't realize that we're manipulating and scheming and all the double speak that we have when we speak to him and to other people. He took all that with him. And when he rose again, he put himself back together with a new wholeness. And he passes his wholeness on to all who follow him. That's what Jesus does. Jesus paid the cost for our wholeness. If you follow him, make full use of it. Don't go through life half-heartedly with manipulative hearts. And if you're listening to this and yearn to be made whole, you can be. That's the offer that Jesus has. He is asking all of us today, do you want to get well? And here are some questions that will help you assess kind of where you are with manipulation and help you move forward towards wholeness. How do your attempts to manipulate God sabotage your relationship with him? What could a life free of religious manipulation be like for you? And by religious manipulation, I don't just mean like organized religion. I mean all the kind of things that we give our attention to and are devoted to. How could a life free of that kind of manipulation, what would that look like for you? And the third one is, what could be a small possible step towards that change? Instead of it just being like a good thought or a good idea, what's something small, very, very small and practical that you can put into your life now to grow? So we are bent on manipulation. Thankfully, Jesus is the one that frees us from that and gives us the wholeness that he won for us through his death and resurrection on the cross. Let me pray.